Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn why there could be stars made of antimatter in our galaxy. Then, author Paul Greenberg will share some simple, hassle-free changes you can make to help the environment. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Scientists think it's possible that there are stars made of antimatter. The key word here is possible. We haven't found one for sure. But scientists have recently identified 14 potential candidates. As a refresher, antimatter is the same as regular matter, but its properties are reversed. For example, an electron has a negative charge. Its antiparticle, the positron, has a positive charge. So while stars like our sun fuse pairs of hydrogen atoms into helium atoms to release energy, an antistar would fuse antihydrogen into antihelium. Because the fusion process that would turn antihydrogen into antihelium would be so similar to the process most stars use, antistars would look a lot like regular stars. Except for one thing. When matter and antimatter come into contact with one another, they annihilate each other and produce gamma rays. That means that, as regular particles of gas, dust, and ice float around the galaxy, they'd annihilate the antimatter particles around the antistar and turn the antistar into a massive emitter of gamma rays. That's how the search for antistars began. Scientists looked for stars in our galaxy that emitted an unusually high amount of gamma rays using NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope. They found just 14 in 100 billion. The next step will be to see whether we can explain this radiation with other possibilities. And if not, we have a good candidate for an antistar. Further evidence for antistars would be natural antihelium that reached Earth. Antihelium comes in two forms. Antihelium-3, which has two antiprotons and one antineutron, and antihelium-4, which has the same two antiprotons but two antineutrons instead of one. Scientists have successfully created antihelium-3 and 4 in the lab, but detecting it in the wild would mean that there might be large pools of antimatter in the galaxy, like antistars or anticlouds. Even though our sun is a pretty average star, it converts 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. An antistar would need to have accumulated enough antimatter in order to start a similar fusion reaction. That would be a big deal. We've never seen so much antimatter in one place. And here's the good news. A space-based particle physics module called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer has detected eight potential antihelium particles. Six were antihelium-3 and two were antihelium-4. Because it's more complex, scientists think that antihelium-4 is highly likely to be evidence of antistars or anticlouds. So far, though, scientists are still working to confirm the data and to rule out the possibility that the antihelium came from contamination or from other sources. If we were to find evidence of antistars, it would change our understanding of what the universe is made of. Antimatter is relatively rare compared to matter, and we have yet to really figure out why. These new discoveries will help us get there. I don't know if you've heard this statistic, but it's floating around out there that 100 companies are responsible for 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And when you hear a statistic like that, you probably think, 
how can individuals even hope to make a difference? But it turns out there's actually lots of ways. I mean, after all, we're the ones using the gas from fossil fuel companies and eating beef produced by the agricultural industry. And today's guest has some easy, virtually painless tips on what we as individuals can do to help fight climate change. Paul Greenberg is a James Beard award-winning author who's just come out with a new book called The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint. He began by explaining why he wrote the book in the first place. I think the point of this book was to try to bring as many people to the table for you know improving our overall carbon impact on the world, whether they be from the right or the left, conservatives, liberal. Um, so there's a lot of ideas in this book that may strike you know the super virtuous as maybe retrograde, <laughs> but I mean a very simple one would be to switch from beef to chicken. Right. So I think a lot of people out there, probably a lot of your listeners are like, oh, no, we have to go vegan. And I should say I'm mostly vegan with a little bit of fish. But it turns out, actually, that if we could get like the real solid meat eaters in this country to not necessarily go for the bean burger, but go to chicken, they would cut their emissions per pound by 75 percent. So that is pretty big and pretty significant. And I would say if you're going to start with anywhere, why don't start with that? You also mentioned uh, less cheese. What about that? You know, you guys are a little younger than I, but I remember when I was in college, everybody loved this cookbook called the Moosewood Cookbook. And it's like the vegetarian cookbook that everyone embraced. But man, is there a lot of cheese in there. And it turns out that cheese is actually worse from an emissions standpoint than chicken. Um, it's about, I don't know, halfway between chicken and beef in the emission scale. And so if you're choosing your diet based on emissions, doing vegetarian with a lot of cheese is really not the best choice. Actually, chicken or even fish is even better most fish anyway, to, to getting to, you know, a better carbon place. Of course, you know, I don't want to de-emphasize veganism. Veganism is absolutely the best way to go if you want to be your very best. But if you can't get there, then moving away from beef and cheese is a good start. So let's just put it in perspective. A vegan diet is just blows doors off of everything. Like uh, a lentil, you're talking about 0.9 kilos of carbon emissions per kilo of food. So actually, you know, less carbon emissions than the food you get from it. Chicken is like s between six and seven. So it's, it's six or seven times worse than a lentil, but beef is up at 27. So you know what I'm saying? It's all kind of relative. So if we got everybody in the country to be vegan, super terrific. Are we going to get everybody in the country to be vegan? Don't think so. But I do think you could get people to back off of beef, especially since, frankly, it's much cheaper to buy chicken than it is to buy beef. Uh, much, much cheaper. Sometimes it's as cheap to buy chicken it is, as it is to buy lentils. But I mean, that's not you know necessarily a good thing. I mean, the subsidies being what they are, that's the way it is. But I guess what I'm saying is, please, you know, go try to be vegan if you can. But, you know, don't worry about it if you can't. What about all the non-food stuff that we do in the kitchen? How do we cut energy from that? You know, just by putting lids on your pots um, cuts your energy use for your food by about 50%. So that's pretty good. That's pretty no-brainer. So as they say, I'm mostly vegan in my house. I, my son is not being raised vegan. Um, I'm going to leave that choice to him. So I do make him, I'm the main cook in my house. So I, I make a lot of macaroni and cheese. And macaroni and cheese, like there's a lot of times it's a two-step method, right? You boil the pasta and then you cook the pasta in the cheese sauce in the oven. Turns out you could just soak that pasta and it's perfectly fine to throw in with the cheese sauce and you don't have to have that whole second cooking procedure. If you want to be more ambitious though, and, and I have tried to be more ambitious in this COVID in year, um, you could think about buying a, a stovetop induction electric range. And those are really great in the sense that like when you cook on gas, something like 50% 
of the heating energy doesn't go into your food. Whereas induction electric, which works through a form of magnetism, actually gets you about 90% of the heat into your food. And in turn, if you then start sourcing your electricity from a renewable provider, which we can talk about later if you want, then you're really, you know, you're cooking on wind, you're cooking on the sun. That's the kind of thing I think we need to think about in the kitchen. I live in an apartment. I'm a renter. Me too. And so I can't even imagine being able to choose where I get my electricity. Is that a misconception? That is a misconception. Ding, ding, ding. You can. Um, and in fact, you know, there's an item, item number 18 in the climate diet is change the grid if you can't get off of it. You have the opportunity to choose an energy service company or an ESCO as it's called. The climate diet gives you directions on how to do that. And you can choose one that's providing only renewables if you like. And then once you do that, you're really cooking on the sun, as I say. Um, and you can go a step further. You, you know, some places, you can also, in some places, source from a community solar program, which is kind of like the power equivalent of joining a CSA, you know, Community Supported Agriculture. So it's pretty cool what's out there right now. And with the price of solar and wind now dropping below the production costs for much of the fossil fuel sector, I think there's really no reason not to do this at this point. If you're thinking, surely this doesn't apply to where I live, You'd be surprised. Paul reminded us that the power grid is all connected. And in most cases, you can probably find a way to route renewable energy into your home. Again, that was Paul Greenberg, a James Beard award-winning author and the author of The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprints. You can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. All right, well, let's recap today's takeaways. Well, we learned that scientists have identified 14 possible candidates for stars made out of antimatter. These stars emit huge amounts of gamma rays because that's what gets released when matter and antimatter collide. And if we find a star that really is made of antimatter, then it'll change what we know about what the universe is made of. No big deal. I'm amazed that we've found antimatter particles like out in the universe. I mean, I guess it makes sense if I think about it long enough, but like, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I don't know. I always think of antimatter as this like theoretical thing, but it, it exists. We know it does. Anyway, <laughs> and we learned that there are a few simple changes you can make to cut down your carbon footprint. Being vegan is great, but even cutting out beef and just eating chicken makes a big difference. And cutting back on your cheese consumption can help a lot too. But even if you don't want to change your diet, putting lids on your pots can cut your energy consumption by like 50%. And induction cooktops are also a lot more efficient than gas ranges if you have the ability to upgrade. Now, here's my question, Ashley. Paul talked about making mac and cheese. Is it socially acceptable for an adult male, let's say in his mid-30s, to just look in the cupboard one day and wonder what's for lunch and end up cooking himself a little box of mac and cheese? Absolutely it is. Yes. I also like how uh, I feel like the mac and cheese example wasn't as relatable as it could have been because he's like, yeah, of course. And then you put it in the oven. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> who does that? <laughs> Nobody does that. We're all way more eco-friendly than we realized because <laughs> nobody's putting it in the oven. Come on. I mean, when you make it from scratch and you want like to bake the cheese on top or whatever, like for a potluck. Yeah, sure. But like. You know, the blue box of mac and cheese. No way. Yeah, no, he's making fancy mac and cheese. Way fancy. No, I'm I'm not at that level. I'm like stirring the goop, which I'm sure is all definitely cheese and not <laughs> other weird things. Totally healthy. Thank you for supporting my confirmation bias. I am going to continue to make macaroni and cheese. 
during the day. But hey, I make it a little healthier. I stir in either peas or tuna fish. We've discussed this. I remember. And peas and tuna fish were two things that my mom used to put into the mac and cheese and would gross me out when I was a kid. So like, I can't, I can't now, but I get it. It's good. You are making it healthier, just like my mom did. Again, more confirmation bias. (laughs) And I'm here for it. The writer for today's first story was Brianna Brownell. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Make yourself some mac and cheese. No judgment from us. And then join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.